I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Clara Navskoska, a cultural historian specializing in the early history of psychoanalysis. She is the founding director of the International Association for Spielrein Studies. A 2019-2020 Fulbright Visiting Scholar at Union Theological Seminary at Columbia University, and author of the book, The Living Mirror, The Representation of Doubling Identities in the British and Polish Women's Literature, from 1846 to 1938, published in 2014. Her most recent paper in English is Passions, Politics, and Drives, Sabina Spielrein in Soviet Russia. And she's authored many articles on Spielrein in Polish and English. She's currently working on a book on Jewish women psychoanalysts and the great wave of European intellectual immigration in the 1930s to the United States and teaching on this subject at the Blanton Peel Institute. If you're listening to this episode in the podcast stream, do know there is a video of this discussion on YouTube. Just head to Japart Films YouTube channel or search for Rendering Unconscious Podcast on YouTube. You may find links to everything in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. So tell us all how the Spielrein Initiative Institute came about. Um, okay. Um, well, it started in an email conversation with John Launer, who's the author of uh, Spielrein's biography. Um, and we just, we connected at some point. We started exchanging emails and um, and we both had this feeling that, well, that was a few years ago. I'm not sure <laughs> it actually went, but we both had this feeling that 
there are so many experienced scholars scattered around the world um, and so who are not in contact with each other and that they are um, there are also her papers that not not many people have access to not many or not really have access to but not really aware that you can pretty easily get access to and we just started thinking that what if we just brought those people together um so it was one thing to create this platform of exchange of information just to allow people to to, to connect uh, another thing was that um john told me that um, this huge chunk of Spielin's papers, I think he said there are around um, 2,000 uh, letters, for example, in, in, in this, are in possession of those people living um, in Geneva, near Geneva, and, and that those people who inherited them in, um, well, lawful way, but kind of strange way, <laughs> which I'm not going to get into detail, so they're, they're, they're um, yeah, okay, I'm not going to get into, into details with this, but anyway, that they refuse people access to those papers, that, that John had that experience that he tried to access, and then at the beginning they were talking about it, and then it went wrong. So anyway, there's this huge chunk of papers that belong to Spirain that we don't, that have not been catalogued, um, they have not been researched, copied, and we really have no idea if they're really even preserved properly. So we had this idea that if we create an association and approach um, those people as an association, not as a single person, that we might, uh, might get a, a bigger chance of, of uh, getting access to those papers. And we're hoping to, to be able to move them to a safer place, like, like Rousseau Institute in Geneva, for example, one of, one of the things we're, we're thinking about. And this, um, uh, and this is happening, but in a little different way than we imagined, because they allowed one of the uh, members of Spirian Association, Henry Lothain, to, to access the papers. And he's working with Vladimir Spirin, who's another member, um, and who's a great nephew of, of Sabina. And they are, um, they have translated those papers from Russian to English, and they're, well, I think they're almost ready to to publish them, so this is this is good news. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't realize. I mean, of course, she was like kind of erased for a long time, and her papers and her writings were buried for decades, um, and then have been unearthed. Seems like multiple times they've had they've been like growing yeah. and growing and kind of position and notoriety over time um, and of course there's so much that to still uncover I would love to I, I would love to be able to help or to access those you know and bring them out more and more yeah, yeah. what wonderful work you all are doing thank you <laughs> thank you we're, we're at a kind of a halt now because um well, as you know, everything we is. <laughs> everything is, yeah, yeah, obviously. But we had this conference planned for April 2020. We had to move it um, to April 2021. 20, and well, and then there's still a big question mark on, on that, right? If, if it's even happening, but hopefully. But you had so. your first conference the year before, yeah? No, this was so going to be the, the first. first. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I know there's been a lot of work and planning put into that and I was very frustrated <laughs> at some point. But, um, well, I was frustrated when we were making this decision to postpone it and then a few weeks later, like, you know, uh, the pandemic really happened and I completely forgot about it because there was so much, you know, awful things going on at the same time, much, much, much worse than counseling or postponing a conference. Yeah, no, but of course there's so much work. I was supposed to come to New York for the uh, APA Division 39 conference, which was like mid-March and that got canceled I think March 8th and at that point it seemed like oh really is it really getting canceled and then of course like within a week everything was shut down so well how did you discover her and get interested in Sabina Spielrein? Mm. Uh, well I was I was writing my PhD in, uh, in Edinburgh and I was um, in, in um, comparative literature and I was using psychoanalysis for, um, to interpret literature. And my, one of my, I had two supervisors, one of my supervisors, um, Alexandra Smith, she was Russian and she knew Spirin and she just introduced me to her. She, she, she told me there was this person. At that time, um, I don't know, what was it? 20, 2010 maybe? Uh, 2011, uh, we didn't know that much about her. Uh, I mean, the situation is completely different than today. And I remember reading her experience paper on destruction, and I wasn't that impressed <laughs> the first time I read it. Um, obviously, I, I understood the significance of the fact that she wrote it um, in, 20, in 1911 started and then 1912 she published it and then that Freud picked up really picked up the subject of, of the the sex drive and the death drive in 1920 uh, but I didn't get that much into it and but but after this I I read her diaries and this is this completely blew my mind when I was reading her diaries um, the, the, the the well the fragments that we have we don't we don't have all of it we have fragments, but they're diaries, and she copied her letters to her diaries, which was very thoughtful of her. Um, and and then started getting into it and just discovering this incredible, incredible woman, who she was, what she did, what her contributions were. Yeah, no, she's really amazing, and I think very little has been translated into English, and I, I would be wonderful to be able to read more. Well, I think we have a lot translated now. I mean, in 20, I think the end of 2018, December, maybe even, one book came out with uh, three, I think, or four texts translated uh, into English. And then in 2019, February, um, came out a book that I contributed to as well uh, with many translations, English translations of texts. Uh, I think many, many, many of our texts have been translated by now, and I know of uh, of translators working on some others that, that have not been yet. And th that there's there's a um, there's a book, Colleen Covignon and, and uh, Barbara Wharton's book from 1995. No, sorry, I can't remember. But anyway, a few years back, they they published some some texts already. So we we have it's not that bad. 
<laughs> we have we have quite a lot now. That's great. And yeah. um, what do you like to write specifically about her work? Well, I went through all those stages. Um, <laughs> I think um, like a very typical Shpirin scholar, I think I started with this whole story that I think now is absolutely ridiculous to even think about the relationship with Jung, you know, this her being in this triangle between Jung and Freud, uh, pulled by both of those men, you know, to, to, to their sides when they're, um, they're approaching the, 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 this break, breakup between Freud and Jung was approaching, both of them were pulling her apart in a way, and, and, and the whole relationship with Jung, the whole discussion, if it was sexual or it wasn't, which I, I find completely irrelevant today. Um, and I mean, of course it was sexual, but you know, there's so many Jungian scholars who keep on fighting and for, <laughs> for that uh, view that it was not sexual and that Jung did not really abuse her at all. And that was completely fine because formally he was not her uh, therapist anymore. I don't, I don't get into that anymore. I, I think um, I, what I'm trying to do, what we're trying to do in this association, what we're trying to do in this conference that I hope is happening um, next April uh, is to shift focus to her work. So not her life, not her personal relationships, not even how she contributed to other people's work because this was like stage two I think of this uh, Spirein scholarship, and this was stage two for me too, personally, when I was working on, on Spirein. So not, not, um, not how she contributed to Jung's uh, discoveries, to Freud, to, to, and then in Russia, to, to Lurian Vygotsky, for example, to Piaget in Geneva, and so on and so on. But last final stage, I think, is, is um, her own work, what she actually did, what she was working on. And I'm, I'm in New York now. I came here on the Fulbright Fellowship to, to work on this project devoted to Spirain. And I'm working on um, her model of development of language and thought. And which she came up, well, she, start, she presented it first in 1920 in The Hague during conference. And then she worked on it, she published on it in a few, um, few papers. And um, what, I've, what I found is that uh, her her model, the way she presents it, the way she describes it, is has a lot of similarity with Jacques Lacan's um, three stages of development, and especially with Luce Irigari and Helen Sisu's approach to language that can be uh, this motherly language or or fatherly language, this uh, preverbal or verbal. So there's like two. Spirin writes about two different languages, um, two different, yeah, two, yeah, <laughs> more or less that. So that's that's what I'm focused focused on now, and and I'm and I'm after that I'm moving on to a little different project. I won't be. I think I've worked on Spirin for so many years. <laughs> this is my final final project for now <laughs> so final on Spirain I've, I've already started um, this new project on on Jewish um, women analysts who immigrated to the United States so I'm I've always been working on women <laughs> in a way I've always been doing that when I was um, dealing with literature it was always the, the forgotten somehow overlooked um, female writers 
and with psychoanalysis is the same, but I'm, I'm kind of moving away from, from Spearing. And because I discovered something here in, in, in New York and um, I want to focus on that now. So what are you focusing on next? So um, it's, a, it's a project about, um, um, well, so I, I'm looking at this whole wave of intellectual immigration of the 30s. So it's, it's, it's um, I'm taking a step back from like cl clinical psychoanalysis. This project on experience model of development of language is very, um, um, it's, it's very, it concerns psychoanalytic ideas. And this new one on immigration is more a cultural, political, social, historical project. So I'm looking at more broadly at this wave of intellectual immigration in the 30s and to the United States from Europe and, and on psychoanalysis in it, and especially on, on women, women psychoanalysts. So I, I was looking, I was making this huge list I didn't know it was going to be so huge, but I wanted to make this list of women who, uh, when they were forced to leave in the 30s, um, when they, oh, they, some of them were not maybe forced because some of them left in 31, 32, so maybe even before, before Hitler um, came to power, but when things were already happening in, in Europe. Um, but when they decided to leave, when they were forced to leave, they were already practicing psychoanalysts or training psychoanalysts um, and most of them like I don't know probably 90% of them we, we really don't know about and I, I'm a I'm a I call myself a cultural historian and I deal with early psychoanalysis I haven't I, I never came across those names so um, I want to write about them because many of them have not really contributed um, in a very significant way well one way of looking at it is that they haven't contributed in a very significant way uh, to the history of psychoanalysis, or history of ideas, because they haven't published that much or their works were not that groundbreaking. But I believe that they are part of a community. Uh, and especially if you think that, if, if, if you think about the fact that psychoanalysis in Europe was very much about a community, it was very much about exchange of ideas and views. It was very different in the US. It was, very connected with therapy and it was this medical profession and it was focused on providing help for patients but in Europe um, the, the, the Freud's idea was that it's a psychoanalysis was this social culture project political too I mean early Freudians were very political they Many of them gave up on this in 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 the US because there were socialists or Marxists and this, that was you know, frowned upon, and they 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 hid it, or, or or they kind of gave up on it. But in Europe, psychoanalysis was this, there was this idea to reach as many people as possible to, you know, to to make this accessible. If you if if you ask lay people to read Freud, it's not that difficult to read him. The way he wrote, right, is is mm. very accessible. So that was the whole idea. And also, if you read the minutes, that's a very interesting read. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I like, you know, reading stuff like this and sitting, in, sitting in archives <laughs> yeah, and doing research. When you read that, you see how important discussion was for them. So you had one person or two people presenting 
a paper or a draft of a paper or some kind of idea. And there was this whole huge discussion of members. And then there were people invited, guests who came over and everyone contributed. And this, this in between publications, in between presentations would happen with the discussions, with presenting ideas, with criticizing each other, commenting. I don't think this survived in, in, in the US. Maybe it's back now. I, I'm, I'm not really sure, but it wasn't there in the 30s, 40s, 50s. But it was there in Europe. So I think those women that I'm talking about that we don't know their names at the moment and they maybe have not contributed by publishing, they did by taking part of those discussions and they were part of this community. Um, so this is what I want to... Um, write a book about really um, their place their role and their stories how did they immigrate what what was waiting for them what was the immigration policy of the u.s this is some things are really shocking i some things i didn't know about like or the quotas or the complete aloofness of u.s when you know um all those things that were happening in in in, in europe all the anti-semitic laws um and actions that Hitler was undertaking and US was still not really responding. Nothing was really happening. They weren't allowing more people to enter. They weren't letting refugees to enter. This is appalling really. Mm. Um, but yes, yeah, so that, that's, that's, um, that's, the, that's the new project. That's wonderful. I would look forward to reading that book. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's so important and what you're doing is so important and especially like you said focusing on women because as you spoke about with Spielrein it's like first it's talking about like first she's lost completely then it's like about her relationship with Matt, these men and then it's yeah. about oh, okay she she did think too and so like now we could see how the men uh, absorbed her ideas and then finally it's like oh actually she was a whole fleshed out person of her own but it feels like yeah this is happening with a lot of women from history and it's like in the past couple of decades finally more and more people are getting more and more women are being unearthed i just wrote a book about art and psychoanalysis and there's a wonderful book about dada artists that were women by this um woman named ruth hemus who's in the uk and you know she writes about four women that i knew but then one selena no i'd never heard of her and she was like in all of the dada like plays and performances and wrote in all of the journals and was photographed with everybody but it's like her name is like I had never heard her before so it's such a common story unfortunately yeah yeah it is but it's so wonderful that we have this um whole you know uh, wave of interest in a way and all the research the last thing i saw before new york closed up <laughs> was i saw this performance about mozart's sister it was also very moving um another person you know that's uh had this well if she was a man she would have made an incredible career but she wasn't another thing that comes to my head um i mean it's it's different but there's I think about politics a lot. Great. <laughs> Time, you know. But uh, I was thinking during um, when Biden was picking up his VP and when he announced he's going to be a woman, you had all those women all of a sudden being, being their names were being discussed in the media. They were all of a sudden brought up. Well, of course, some of them were well known. 
but some of them weren't. Um, I'm, I'm not that, I mean, I'm learning about American politics. I've only just, you know, came here in September. So of course I didn't know them, but as far as I know, many people maybe knew the names, but didn't know what they were doing. So this is, um, uh, I had this thought that maybe this was pretty amazing that he announced is going to be a woman. And then we had those, all those uh, people had all those ideas, who could it be? And then even in this area, completely different from psychoanalysis and, and, and academia, we had a discussion about all those women that were before that. Yeah. They, they, and then, and then we learned that they, they had, um, you know, a lot, many contributions, very important contributions but we're not really that important. Exactly. So. No, they, they, they had written all these bills and pushed certain things through over the years, um, but you hadn't really heard their names either as getting credit. Yeah. What a time to come to the U.S. and New York. <laughs> yeah, I September. know. <laughs> I know, it's, it's insane. Yeah. It's an experience. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, but it's also, um, you know, it's interesting in this, you know, interesting, <laughs> like this, um, there's this, you know, Chinese curse that um, may you live in interesting times. I right. think that's, that's, <laughs> that's the interesting times you live in. But um, yeah, but it is interesting also, true. It is interesting. And you did get to see New York from September till March, so that's good. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now I now I rarely live leave Harlem when I leave live, which is really insane, you know, to live in New York and not really leave your apartment that much. Walk around your neighborhood. But I got to know my neighborhood very well. That's that's um that's another interesting thing in a way, you know. I, I um because um yeah I, I don't i don't take the train so i don't travel far than commute anywhere i just go on a walk so like so uh, there's those streets next to my street like next block two blocks away i didn't know about those areas i didn't really you know i don't really go there because um and i live in an incredibly beautiful part of harlem it's called hamilton heights everything here is about alexander hamilton um, but it's really beautiful, um, you know, brownstones, beautiful trees, amazing people. Um, but I never really walked around that much in this neighborhood and now I do. And I got to, you know, when you walk slowly, you, you, well, you, when you walk, you, you, you get to experience everything around you when you hurry to work or when you take a train, you don't really see that. So that's, that's an upside. <laughs> Exactly. It's made everyone kind of stop and yeah, pay attention to more immediate surroundings and internal experiences too, I think. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, at, at least for me, when the conference happens, now I can make sure to go because I think when it was happening before, I was actually going to be in New York because of the APA conference. So now when you do have the conference, I'll be sure to be able to go. It, you were having like a whole walking tour and it sounded really exciting. Yes, it's a three-day conference and I wanted it, well, it was, um, I'm, the, I'm the main organizer of, of the conference. So I really wanted to bring people to Warsaw. That was the first idea. 
and um, Spurian's father was born in Warsaw and she went to school there for a little bit. So this was, um, that's a justification, but I really wanted to meet also kind of between the West and the East. And I really wanted to make it in my hometown. Um, but because of that, I, was, I started to think, okay, so how about I show people a little bit of Warsaw during those three days as well. So we got, um, so we got um, one thing we have is we started collaboration with a Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw and they invited us for a guided tour um, of uh, Ringenboom archives. Um, I don't know if you, if, if you know what that, that's um, during, the, um, during the war in the ghetto, people would, there was this, um, there's this initiative to, um, to collect as many documents as possible, uh, whatever people had, letters that they wrote, and, you know, birth certificates, everything that they had. And I think there were three containers. Uh, yeah, I think there were three containers and they found only two um, that they put them in the, in a, like, um, I'm not sure how it's called in English, it's like this metal milk container. Mm -hmm. Um, and they put it in there um, and, and buried it on the ground. And then this was found after the war. Wow. And it took this huge group of people many years, of course, to preserve it because it was, it was the, 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 the um, metal bottle or whatever this was corroded. And I think some other documents were hidden in just, just like a cardboard box maybe i'm not sure i don't i'm sorry i don't remember exactly but anyway they had to restore the documents and they made this amazing exhibition out of it it's very moving i it really makes you cry but it's it's an amazing amazing exhibition so this is one of the things that that um participants of the conference um have this is one of the things we're doing another thing we have this amazing tour guide um, Agnieszka Haska, who's going to take us around the ghetto. And um, so it's like a night walk um, around the ghetto and the, the former ghetto area. And she's going to talk about, with, with a focus of psycho, on psychoanalysis or psychologists. So she's going to say who lived where, what was happening where. So this is, this is um, another thing that we're doing. That's wonderful. And I think it really is important to like rebridge psychoanalysis and politics, because as you said in the beginning, it was really p political and for a long time. And it feels like that really got split or like repressed when the immigration happened to the U.S. because, you know, the yeah, U.S. was hostile in other ways. <laughs> you know what I mean, um, and it yeah. probably wasn't really welcomed. Um, and people also just had to kind of protect themselves, I think. So, so it m remained kind of underground for a really long time. But I feel like really recently, more and more people I meet that are um, engaged in psychoanalysis are specifically engaged in practice and like bringing psychoanalysis to more and more people and also um, making psychoanalysis more political and like having a voice kind of in the greater cultural sphere instead of just being like in the consulting room. Yeah, that's that's great. I don't uh, I, I don't really know much about what's happening now, but that's that's great. I know I know about differences during the 30s when you know in Berlin, um, well in Europe generally um, they would have clinics next to institutes. They would open clinics with low fees, 
And in Berlin, in the institute in Berlin, everyone had to um, treat one patient for free. So there's ideas like this. And, and also fees would be um, adjusted to, to capabilities of the patient. In, in the US, nothing like this is happening. Mm -hmm. So af after a while, there was this idea, I think in Chicago, that in the Chicago Institute, that they would have low fee clinic, but it's completely, completely different, different approach. Yeah, and if, you know, now it's, we're in a time of crisis and so many people, more people need help, right? So I've, I've read about many initiatives now because of COVID, because of um, racial unrest, all that's happening that's really, uh, you know, stressing people out. And I've read about many initiatives that are happening now when people, when, when psychoanalysts or therapists really offer free help free therapy, free advice. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really amazing because I bet people really need it. And the ones that need it most, people who we call, you know, essential workers, um, they're the ones that can afford it. Mm -hmm. so that's, that's really amazing. Yeah, exactly. we be bringing treatment to people who are on the front lines, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and like you, I really love reading like letters and I love like reading notes from from meetings and things like that, like the things that weren't like meant to be published. I love reading those yeah. kinds of things. <laughs> and like Spielrein's diaries, for example, like I remember the first time I read read through that, it was like, how do you write like this in your personal journal? It's like the most beautiful prose, you know? Yes. <laughs> it made me yes, feel really uh, inefficient. <laughs> so my diaries do not sound like this. Um, they're beautiful. They're really, really beautiful. Um, so that, yeah. that would be wonderful if the association is able to get more and more access to her letters and be able to archive and preserve and kind of uh, make the work even more accessible. I had forgotten about those books that recently came out. And I think that's because I like pre-ordered them when they were coming out and I have not received them. So I am going to check oh. on that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I find that that okay. happens a lot where I get excited and then I pre-order something and then I realize like much later, like I've never gotten that. Um, and then I had to go back and check and see what happened. Yeah. So I'm going to do that literally <laughs> right after we hang up. <laughs> Be like, okay. where are my that books? Remind you about that. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about Shapiro and I've been for, for, for years now and I'm really looking forward to this conference. It's been because it's been postponed and so much has been happening lately. I don't think about it that much at the moment. And I've done, you know, I've done, we, we postponed it in February. So two months before the conference, not even, I think. So I had almost everything done. And um, it's insane how much you have to do. I mean, all the catering and the recording and like so many things you don't even think about, you know, when you, we managed to get four grants for this conference, which is amazing, and I never expected that. And then so many partners who, who help us out, like um, the Polish Academy of Sciences that gave us uh, the room for the conference, or, or the Jewish Historical Institute that, like I mentioned before, they, they, they give this amazing tour. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and IPU, the, the International Psychological University in Berlin, their main partner, they helped us um, to have it, everything, or to, to organize everything and to, and to uh, well, they, they helped us to get the grants because we were able to apply as a Polish-German corporation, which is 
very uh, <laughs> very valued it's, it's it's yeah it's 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 easier to get money as a polish jewish corporation due to history obviously it's still very valued and then we talk about jewish issues so we got the money because of that but um but yeah so i was thinking okay grants room you know we have a program ready and we're all set but no there were so many tiny tiny things but all of this is really done now um of course we don't know i mean the the, the program might change because uh we'll see who's able to come who's who isn't and and you know we're not even sure if it's happening in april we'll see you know how we're doing the vaccine and if we're in the clear by then but there's one thing i'm i'm very excited uh, i'm uh, very excited about and you know i um, I'd like to invite everyone who's, who would like to participate. Um, we as an association have a website. Um, it's spielreinassociation.org. You have all the info about the, the conference there and about Spielrein, like everything we were managed to, we have managed to collect. Um, so all the photographs, there are not many, they're there in the gallery. Um, list of her papers which took many scholars a long time to, to, to gather this, this list, to put it together. We had the whole list. And if any of the papers are um, free to access, you have access through our website. And then there's a list of publications about Spirain with access to whatever is, you know, accessible, freely accessible. And um, yeah, so, so that's, that's the conference, that's the website and but what I'm most interested and excited about lately is this, um, I don't know, politics, immigration, women, <laughs> you know, um, dictatorships are all over the world. Mm -hmm. That's, but I'm not sure if that's what you want, <laughs> if you want to talk politics. Or... No, it's totally fine. It's absolutely <laughs> essential right now. And it's all, it's all interrelated. You know, I think this idea, it this is, older yeah. idea of like, that you leave certain topics at the door and they're not discussed. It's really done us a disservice as a whole, because people need to keep discussing this, even in times when they don't feel as critical, because they're always critical. This is always critical, to, you know? <laughs> yeah, but you, you're you're right that you know everything is really connected. And um, when I read all those texts about immigration of the '30s, um, you know the immigration policy of the United States. Of course, I think about Trump and his immigration policy, um, his executive orders, his ideas. You know, uh, you, you probably heard he had this idea for completely insane idea, which uh, thankfully he dropped after. Harvard and MIT, I think, sued him or threatened to sue him, that he wanted all the foreign students to leave US if they didn't. Um, so if, if, they, if all, the, all of their classes were remote, and that's a very big chance that they were, because basically almost all the universities go, you know, start having virtual classes in the fall. Mm -hmm. um, so if all of their uh, classes were remote, were to be remote, they would have to leave US do it from their home country so and then yeah he walked it back but but you know I, I i this this resonates with what was happening in the 30s and of course um you know when i when i read about um like uh, 
trying to refresh my memory how Hitler was coming into power and how this was happening, how gradual this is. Um, like, for example, we, we, we say, okay, in 1933, he became chancellor, but no, it started in 1930 when, when his party was, was, you know, was, was getting more and more, uh, becoming more and more popular, getting more and more seats in the parliament. And, um, and this makes me think about the dictators of dictatorships of today, dictators today. And I started listing them and making, there's a huge list of them. And what they're doing, you know, slowly, it's, it's the same, same idea, basically. The same, uh, the same um, I don't know, um, schedule that they're, that they're following, um, like Hitler did. So this, you know, it's, it's this, I'm, 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 a, I'm a historian at heart, <laughs> cultural historian at work. I would not call myself a, like a real historian. But I think when you look at history, I mean, it's always so painful for me. When you look at history, you see how much it repeats itself. Why don't we learn from it? It's so frustrating. You know? Oh, it's really, no, it's really, really true. And I feel like uh, there's been a lot of scholars who have said like, you know, this is happening for years already, um, since, since the beginning of him and, uh, and people just didn't, didn't take it seriously enough and still aren't yeah. in some ways. And, uh, I feel like, like you said, like, like before there was this era of Trump, we had like the tea party, um, where the Republicans all of a sudden got really, really white wing and everyone just thought like this, this, I mean, the tea party seems so far fetched, but now that's like, that's like the norm in, in the Republican party. <laughs> so it's like, um, you can't discount things when they happen and think that they're not really having that much of a hold or you know not not take them seriously i feel like people didn't take this seriously in a lot of ways including a lot of the politicians in the u.s they thought like oh who is this guy he's new to politics he doesn't know what he's doing uh, but people that don't know what they're doing can cause real serious problems <laughs> yeah yeah you know and i was reading um like a couple of weeks ago i was reading how did this even happen that hitler came to power and how does it even happen that that the Nazi party was was um, you know um, took over the parliament and so th the research was showed that many people voted for Hitler his party because they believed that he, they didn't like him they were saying okay but he's so loud let's give it to him he's not going to do anything he so this is going to like kind of uh, uh, you know, um, he's going to kind of blow up. So he's, 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 this is going to end soon because he's, he, there's nothing behind his words. There's nothing happening. So let's vote for him just to have it done with. Or some other people were saying, um, let's give him a chance. And I remember this happening in Poland, for example, um, when the Law and Justice Party came to power. Um, so this was what five years ago, right? There's just been yeah, five years ago, and people were so fed up with the previously ruling party, the Civic Platform, that they were saying, I don't know, you know, they they were definitely um, not seeing Law and Justice Party as a threat, the, the threat they became. 
and they like in Germany they weren't seeing, seeing Hitler as 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 that threatening, and they down downplayed this, and they were saying let's give him a chance, or we're so fed up with the civic platform, and so on and so on, and sorry, and law and justice they won, and they started changing Poland into well not undemocratic country, you know, and they started doing what Hitler has always been doing, undermining institutions that, you know, that, <clears throat> that check them, that control them, like the courts, for example. This is one of the biggest battles in, in, in Poland. And that's, you know, it's, it's exactly the same that's, that's happening in Hungary, on, of course, Belarus, that's, you know. And Trump's doing the same thing, right? So it's like, if you look at this, you think, oh my God, stop. You can't just vote for someone because you're fed up with the previous government or because let's give them a chance or because, you know, because there were signs there that, that law and justice is um, incredibly conservative, um, racist, anti-Semitic, nationalistic, uh, undemocratic, populistic, party this was obvious so yeah <laughs> yeah and and yeah exactly and like you're saying it's nothing new these these we can see the signs people have studied this a lot you know <laughs> especially since yeah. world war ii um and we need to listen to those scholars and uh i just watched this film um official secrets last night which has Kira knightley speaking of sabila spielheim uh, she was in she was in it um and uh it was it was about you know when george w bush was in power and how like he wanted to get information uh, certain information to justify going into iraq um his web his weapons of mass destruction and how when he wasn't getting that information uh cheney and donald rumsfeld like instead of listening to the CIA's information, they just created their own organization to collect information. And then lo and behold, that organization gave them the information they wanted, you know? So like that was 20 years ago um, and they, yeah. did, they did it then. So even with Trump, it's like, he's not, he's not that new, even though I feel like the difference yeah. with him is that he's so like blatant, you know? It's like, he's just doing it all out for everyone to see and doesn't even yeah. understand what why it's a problem because of, he's like of course this is how us works <laughs> whereas everyone else pretended it didn't work that way <laughs> yeah yeah he's he's just it's just insane that he's president oh my god it's just so it's every day there's something that's that's something i've um i i listen to um I um I started listening to with the pandemic my life has really really changed, and I I, I got stuck at home with with two kids, um, homeschooling for the first three months, you know, doing math and PE and dance and English skills and and all that. I have a four and and seven year old, so that was uh, that was tough, and I and I kind of switched to. From reading books, I switched to listening to podcasts and audiobooks because, um, like, I would walk around the playground, for example, <laughs> or, or you know, my kids would play and I would just walk around listening instead of sitting on the bench and reading because I, I have this feeling that I've been sitting the whole day, basically, in front of a computer with my daughters first and then my own work. 
so um, uh, those amazing podcasts I've been I've been listening to, and I um, and um, like I listen a lot to Pod Save America, and um, my favorite deconstructive Mehdi Hassan, and one of those I don't remember which one. I think Mehdi was saying, but I think actually as a guest on Pod Save America, he was saying that we there's so much going on there's some big story every day trump says something completely insane or does something or signs an executive order it's completely insane every day and irrelevant and or he you know he endorses some conspiracy theory mad woman who says that uh, i don't know whatever aliens may give us COVID or something like this and he retweets her tweets or he or he, uh, you know, and he tells us to to um, to use whatever this was he wanted us to inject to get rid of COVID, mm-hmm. bleach or something, and so on and so on. So there's so much that we forget. Like we're complacent with with what had happened, and we forget that you know what he said before, and also what had happened. Like what what happened with. That's why there's this idea of, you know, remembering, for example, all those victims, usually black, but not only of police brutality, like, um, you know, all those people who are pushed to the ground of police, completely peaceful protestants, like there was this, you know, older man who got pushed and he started bleeding, I don't remember his name. And we forget about this. And this is this is so threatening. This is so terrible. And I found myself forgetting too, because my life is filled with all of that anxiety and frustration and uncertainty. So we just just forget. And this is um, so we should remind ourselves, or we should have leaders who remind us, or we should let scholars and scientists remind us. You know that oh so two weeks ago this happened and then this happened let's not let's not forget about this let's not lose this amidst this whole mess and insanity that's happening yeah that's a really good point should we stop with that point is there anything else that you wanted to talk about i always like to stop it at a point where i want people to like now go think about that that's (laughs) that's how i always feel about the ending instead of being like bye that was nice talking to you i like feeling like people need to like go think about that (laughs) i just wanted to hear all about your association and how that happened um because it's i think it's really fantastic endeavor and now that i hear about your work that you're doing moving forward that sounds like just as a fantastic endeavor so it's really wonderful to have discovered you and your work thank you i think i i had this i had this thought now that i should have probably that when i was telling you that um how john launer and me we, we we started talking about the association at some point john came up with this idea to include one more person to invite agent harris um, and we did it, the three of us. That's that's just, I just realized that I, I sh- maybe should have added this one more sentence to to talk about Adrian as well, who's an amazing, incredibly generous person, uh, psychoanalyst in New York. And um, so so it was the three of us setting up the association. And, and um, so when I said I'm here on the Fulbright Fellowship and I mentioned my project on, 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 on language, my faculty advisor here is an amazing amazing person so it's pamela cooper white and she i just want just like to say she's 
been an amazing person, incredibly helpful, supportive, understanding, patient, and just a great, great friend too. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful it. that you were able to have a Fulbright and to specifically focus on this work. Yeah, they liked it. It's <laughs> great. They liked it's it. important. I, I sold it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I had to. It's uh, people usually ask, you know, when you, when I try to get a grant, but why history? Why is it important? come on, <laughs> really? But today, it's so obvious it's important, but you know, it's always been the thing that I had to explain. So why are you dealing with someone who died in 1942? Why? Why not something more, you know, current, more present? Well, you know, you know yeah. why, right? Really. That's amazing. I don't even understand the question. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Let's first yeah, think about how she died, so and then maybe we'll talk about yeah. more. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's you know it's it's because it's it's about money. So if you if you give money to a research project, you want it to be groundbreaking, right? So you prefer someone who's looking for a cure for cancer to someone who's digging in archives. I get that, but I think really you know history. I I, I think we're responsible for the past you know so and now when i have children i understand this even more it's really important how we tell other people and our kids and ourselves about history we are responsible for it it's not it's not um neutral in a way it's not just facts it's it's how you present it, how you talk about it what you emphasize what you like what and who you forget who you leave out Right, so I think it's, it's actually this is my, my personal responsibility to talk about history. And, and especially now, come on, let's just, let's just all go back to, to, to history books and read about what happened. And, you know, and I was, I was listening to this amazing, amazing podcast. Too. I listened to a lot of those. Uh, that's WNYC, the um, New York City Radio. Uh, they have amazing podcasts too in this um, series called um, Radio Lab. Mm -hmm. And it was about um, like this aftermath of 1918 pandemic. It was really interesting. They were talking about um, how the pandemic influenced the talks between uh, Woodrow Wilson and the French prime minister uh, Clemenceau, sorry, I forgot for a second. Um, they were talking about, well, there were the two main forces talking about how to deal with Germany after the war. And Wilson was saying, let's create the League of Nations, let's invite Germany there, let's think uh, more broadly about how to stop a, a, another war from ever happening. And Clemenceau was saying, no, let's punish them. He wanted retaliation. And Wilson got sick. We, there's no way of saying if he had the flu, but this was in Paris, as far as I remember. And there was a second wave coming through Paris at that time. And, and he got sick. He had all the symptoms of the flu. And after this, he softened. And the League of Nations was created by without Germany. And Germany was severely punished. And historians say, well, this was one of the causes of the rise of Hitler, 
right? This punishment, this uh, humiliation of Germany that was really pushed into um, depression. And um, yeah, so that's one thing. Another thing they were saying was about Gandhi, who was, during the war, Gandhi was speaking, he, he, he was speaking publicly, he was telling people to join the forces with UK and fight um, together. He got sick and he most definitely had the flu and India was incredibly affected. They had between 10 and 20 million of deaths during the pandemic. While for example, US had half a million. So he got sick for months. He got sick for months. And he, during those months, he started writing. And it seems like he really rethought his whole life. And there's a lot about God. There's a lot about, you know, just changing your life, transforming your life during this. When he, he, he thought he's going to die, it was so bad. And it lasted for months. And when he came out of it, he changed his attitude. He said, yeah, let's fight, but against UK. And let's not fight, uh, you know, not, n not a military fight anymore. So there's changes in art, for example, this approach to, sh sh um, so well, the, 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 the theory is that the, um, before the, before the war, um, painters would paint um, human bodies. And after the war, there was a shift far away from this to more abstract painting because bodies were, you know, bodies during the war, bodies during the pandemic, deformed, uh, wounded, bleeding, and so on. So, so all of that, that's very, very interesting. And, and um, yeah, that's again, something we, we could be learning from. Could be thinking what's happening with us during this pandemic. And we, I hope it will last. I hope it lasts, but it seems like there's this transformation, at least in the US happening with many things that are caused by the pandemic and and by all the you know in the wake of of George Floyd's murder and all the other uh black people murdered by white policemen and and all the racial unrest all the protests that's been happening I hope it lasts I mean I hope is not just words but it seems like I I think you know I'm, I'm new to this um so it's all very new to me, but I think the officially, the official stance was that U.S. got rid of um, racism, that it's gone. That well, they are you know like individual uh, instances of of racist attacks, but it's not not the rule. And so there was the war, um, there was uh, Martin Luther King, there were the '60s or the marches and so on. So now it's all good. And then first the pandemic showed this huge gap. Uh, and this is, well, it's awful to say this, but it, in a way it is an upside to the pandemic. So it showed, you know, I, I can't remember the numbers now, but huge discrepancy in number of cases of white people versus black and brown people. Uh, and why is that, you know? This is something they discovered. They all of a sudden, they opened their eyes and they said, oh, really, there are those gaps there. Uh, achievement gaps, education gaps, financial gaps, uh, you know, and then we had this, um, uh, you know, all of a sudden we had this new category of people called the essential workers who are on the first line, who, uh, you know, who drive buses and who work in grocery stores and of course all the people mm, in hospitals 
people who collect garbage and all that, like many, many people. And so, and then there's a question, but wait, but if those people get sick with COVID, do they even get, have insurance? Because mm -hmm. usually those people don't have it or have a very cheap insurance. So what do we do about this? How unfair is that, right? So, so this happened and then for example, I had I was I attended this meeting at with the DOE and town hall, and they were talking about how all the anti-racist protests they made them rethink um, how little time they devoted at schools to the issues of racism, how little they speak about that. So there's they said they want to change that. They want to change the curriculum for for schools. Which, which, which seems amazing too. I just really hope, you know, they, they actually do it. So I really hope it's not gonna be like, okay, we have a vaccine. And then also that's another question, right? So one thing is to have a vaccine. Second thing is who gets it, mm -hmm. right? Is it just the rich Republicans who get it? Or do we all get it? Do immigrants like me get it? Is it free or is it affordable at least? Do, do, you know, do, do essential workers get it first? You know what, that's, that's like so many questions like, like, like that, that unfortunately the president of the United States really don't care about. Not at all. And like you said too, with this, this idea of like sending everyone back to their home countries to do their education since it's all online anyway, as if that's an option for everyone, <laughs> like as if everyone could just all of a sudden go back to a place where they've been uprooted or have left or, you know, like everyone has a home there waiting for them, you know? <laughs> yeah. But you know, this was, this, this was just really cruel, I think, you know, just cruel because if you think of, about economy, foreign students who come to us they help the economy they pay for things here like food and accommodation and buy clothes and so on and so on so that's the idea is ridiculous so i think it was just cruel you know just vicious vicious yeah yeah but that's something you know i uh when i came to new york i was well i love the city it's an amazing amazing state but most of all I love the people here. I think people are so welcoming, just really incredibly welcoming and open. And, and you know, I, I, I did my PhD in Edinburgh and in Edinburgh at that time, there were many uh, Polish people, uh, well, in the UK, generally speaking. And, and I, was, I was doing my PhD and I was working in a restaurant as a waitress. Um, and there were many Polish people working in that restaurant, mostly in the kitchen, in the back. And, and we had different lives. That's true. I mean, I had an apartment, I was, um, and I was studying there and most of the people I met there, Polish people, they would really try to save money. So they would have, you know, they would share a partner with many people, even some people would be sleeping in the kitchen and because they were just trying to make as much money as possible. They were sending money home uh, I didn't have to send money home to my parents. I mean, that's not what I went there for. I did there to study, to have my PhD, but they went there to make money, send it home to their parents who did not have enough money. Um, so they were supporting, helping their parents. But so Scottish people who are otherwise 
well, I mean, okay, that's a huge generalization, but I had many situations where Scottish people who are amazing and I really like them. I really enjoyed Edinburgh, a beautiful, amazing city. But I had this conversation where people would say, oh, so where are you from? I say, oh, I'm from Poland. Uh-huh, okay, so what are you doing here? I'm studying, oh, great, you know? So as long as I was studying, it was great. But there's this, there was this idea which is completely false that immigrants, this is what Trump says today, immigrants come to a different country to take the jobs away from the natives. That's absolutely absurd. You know, I'm not an economist, but that's, people say, well, the economists say it's not, that's not what happens. You don't, we don't take their jobs away. We help the economy. And if, that's, exactly. That's, if anything, it helps the economy. So, yeah. But this was there. And in New York, I never had a single conversation like this. No one, no one asked, you know, why, what I came here to do. If I came here to, to work as a waitress or, or to study or, or I'm a refugee, no one, no one ever asked us. Everyone was incredibly, incredibly welcoming and supportive to me and my kids. And my kids went to school here. They didn't speak English at all. They really needed support two different schools because my younger one was in a um like a pre pre-k 3k actually for three years old and my older one was in second grade and they needed they needed support and they got it because children of those amazing people who are amazing to me were amazing to my kids Aww. yes this was really wow <laughs> I was really, really impressed how, how welcoming those people were. They really did not care about anything, why I came here, what I'm doing here, if I'm taking someone's job away or not, or not. No, it's really nice to hear. I feel like, yeah, I really loved living in New York. I lived there for almost 10 years. And uh, yeah, it's just, I feel like everybody has this kind of uh, vibe of like, that we're all like in this together. Like there's definitely like kind of a community vibe going on where like it's it's a difficult place to live but it's really really rewarding and everybody is working a lot you know yeah. um and so yeah. everybody's like everybody's really hustling i feel like and everybody like yeah. understands that and is like trying to support everybody else it's not like competitive in this way of like you know that kind of like you're taking something from me but it's all like everybody's kind of hustling together yeah, I think this is this level up from, you know, competition to, to cooperation. Really, yeah. And support. yeah, yeah. I'm trying Definitely. to help everybody else get up too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm from Europe and we're really good at creating communities, I think, especially Poland is, I think, in the time of danger because we've always been, you know, <laughs> our history is one danger, one disaster after another, you know, one war after another, losing independence for 123 years and then regaining it just to really lose it to Russia. And so we're good at this, creating communities, helping out. When COVID started in Poland, there were so many initiatives, like neighbors would put up um, information um, in, in their buildings saying, if you're older, if you're an elderly person, if you're older, if you need any help with groceries, let me know. I'll get you groceries. Just like that. Just really like grassroots initiatives, you know. Uh, so, so I really appreciated this here because I wasn't expecting to, 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 to find any 
of that community feeling in 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 the US because I know well the idea I had which I revised but I had is that it's mostly about you know everyone for themselves in and it's, it's this in, individualism that's that's the idea that's that's what I was expecting very much and sort of happy to be to be wrong pleasantly surprised yes Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Clara Nashkoska. For more, please visit the Spielrein Association website at spielreinassociation.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated for more information you can also visit my website dr vanessa sinclair dot net or the podcast main website rendering unconscious Org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Something, something slowly, slowly third, third being, being 
Sexuality is not, not around by, by either the, the unconscious, unconscious sexuality. sexuality. Third, third, third. 